This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with a Michigan Technology Activation Manager about grants to companies testing air mobility solutions at the Gerald R. Ford International Airport. In the news, an NTSB preliminary report on the fatal Wings Over Dallas airshow collision, retiring the F-22 Raptor, a Boeing 777X engine issue, a Delta pilot's Me Too clause, and a pilot who destroyed an F-16. All that and more, including a poem about Rob, written by an AI, coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 727 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is... Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year and an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hey there. Happy to be back with you and with uh, everyone else. The reason I'm happy is because I was supposed to be away on a two-day trip, but I'll tell you more about that later, but it all worked out that I got to uh, stay home and come talk with you folks. Wow. I'm, I'm impressed that uh, you're more happy about being with us than being away on a trip, but yeah. It's true. The pay is better. The pay is better here. Yeah. yeah. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. And, of course, he's a publisher at JetWine.com. And just so you all know, I'm, I'm a CFI, too, just like Mr. Max, but he's older than I am, so he has a lot more flying time. Are you sure of that? You uh, might have more flying time. No, I'm I'm making that up. Okay. Well, not the CFI part. Oh, I wasn't. No, he just, okay, I'll shut up. Well, one out of three is not bad. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should add that to the uh, intro script. Also with us, this episode is our main man, Micah. It's always great to have Micah with us. It's great to be here, too. And I think we need to add to the script, yes, Rob is a CFI, but has never been CFI of the year. <laughs> <laughs> That is true. Yes. That is true. Yes. Okay, yes. sorry. All right, our friend David Vanderhoof is off this week, and we'll look forward to seeing him next episode. Our guest this episode is Charlie Tyson. He is the Technology Activation Manager at the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, MEDC. Charlie, do you call that MEDC or MEDC? There are so many acronyms <laughs> in state government, so... We'll go with MEDC, which is the correct way of, uh, I guess, describing it from an acronym standpoint. Thanks for having me. All right. It's great to have you. The uh, MEDC is a public-private partnership between the state and local communities, and they promote smart economic growth by developing strategies and providing services that create and retain good jobs. And recently, the Gerald R. Ford International Airport in West Michigan, announced grant funding to test air mobility solutions at the airport. We're going to talk about that, including drones to support baggage delivery, autonomous mowers, and new technology to help passengers find open parking spots. So again, Charlie, we're really happy to have you with us. I understand you've been with the MEDC for, for six years now in Prior to that, you were a project manager at Invent at NMU, which is an idea incubator. 
That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm uh, super fortunate. I was like a year out of graduating from my undergrad. Didn't know what the heck I wanted to do with my life, but um, was very ambitious. And luckily I fell into entrepreneurship and helping local entrepreneurs in way up in Marquette, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula through Northern Michigan University. Worked for a local incubator or accelerator, which essentially helps local businesses take their ideas from napkin to market or local uh, innovators to being a, a retail entry point for support. And next thing I knew, I uh, just worked my butt off and I uh, was able to join the Michigan Economic Development Corporation in 2000, gosh, maybe 2017, if I'm correct. Um, worked on a couple different programs, and I am currently with the Office of Future Mobility and Electrification through the MEDC. And these uh, grants that we're going to be talking about or this process is uh, made possible through the Ford Launchpad for Innovative Technologies and Entrepreneurship, right? Flight is the acronym. The Ford in flight is not Ford Motor Company, right? It's the, it's the airport. It's the Gerald R. Ford International Airport in Grand Rapids. So can you tell us a little bit about flight and you know what its mission is and maybe even how it came together? Yeah, absolutely. So through our office, another acronym, OFME, is the Office of Future Mobility and Electrification. This office that was um, created through Governor Whitmer is unique in that it has multiple state agencies that are essentially responsible for it. And um, team members within our office are from multiple state agencies, including MEDC, focused on economic development, LEO, the Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity, um, and MDOT. And we work closely with the Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy. I say that because I um, just wanted to preface getting into flight with um, kind of the goals of our office, and that is to accelerate economic development opportunities in the mobility space. Um, we also want to create progressive policies that can not only attract companies to the state of Michigan, but also ensure that we have a safe transportation system here in Michigan. Uh, we also have a big focus on identifying transportation challenges in Michigan communities and finding companies that have the capabilities to solve those. So by doing that, by identifying the challenges and finding the capabilities to solve it, we end up seeing economic development opportunities be generated. So um, we've had a grant program through the MEDC uh, for the last couple of years. And this grant program is an effort to help companies deploy their mobility solutions throughout the state of Michigan. And when we say mobility, um, that term ha is very, very broad. A couple of years back, it was really re around advanced automotive, autonomous vehicle technologies, ground-based autonomous vehicle technologies. And it's really changed over the last year or two, um, maybe two, three, four years max. But mobility really is how we move people and goods from point A to point B by air, land, or sea, or the Great Lakes. So we know that we've, we've seen that. We've seen the trends in the market. We've seen the interest from companies looking to grow from all over the world in North America 
And we want to find ways to help them do that. So we've been able to, um, we've been fortunate enough to connect with local entities in Michigan that have, um, I call them demand entities, entities that have, might have a demand for innovation. They might have a need or a challenge that needs need to be solved. And with COVID-19, when it first came on the scene, unfortunately, the airport in Grand Rapids, the Gerald R. Ford International Airport, um, you know, we didn't know, no one really knew what the heck to do to mitigate against the risk of COVID-19. Uh, so through our grant program, we were able to help a local company in West Michigan deploy an autonomous robot throughout the Grand Rapids Airport, G- GRR, um, to spray FDA-approved um, chemicals that would essentially disinfect the surfaces within the terminals of the Gerald R. Ford International Airport. So um, that was a really exciting project to see come to fruition. And after the success of that project, the airport in Grand Rapids, with their strong leadership, they came to the state of Michigan and our, and our team to ask us what else we could do to support their innovation objectives. So three or four months later, um, we finally got to a point where we had um, a structure that we could support. Uh, we're excited to include Southwest Airlines as our corporate partner. So Southwest Airlines, the Gerald R. Ford Airport, and the state of Michigan came together uh, about a year ago to launch Flight. And Flight is really an effort to help companies globally and locally deploy their air travel solutions at the Gerald R. Ford International Airport. The way we go about, and I'll pause in a second here to let you follow up, but the way we go about that is essentially we identify what type of technologies we're seeking based on the needs and the objectives of Southwest Airlines and the airport. From there, we then put out an application. Companies all over the world and locally can apply They submit how their capabilities can meet the needs of the airport and Southwest Airlines. And we're now going through our second round of projects. So really excited about it. Uh, It's definitely something unique. There's only one other um, asset, I like to call it, in North America um, that's similar, and that is with the San Diego International Airport. So they were super helpful. I reached out to them to talk about what they learned, what their experiences were. Um, They are now part of part of our advisory committee within flight, but uh, it's definitely um, a very unique asset we we have here in the Midwest. That's fantastic. This really feels like something that benefits all the parties involved in in one way or another. You mentioned that the the airport's kind of got a taste for what was possible during the pandemic with this disinfecting uh, machine robot. Did you really want to say a taste? yeah, I guess not. Little... <laughs> Bad choice of words, right, Rob? <laughs> so in, in terms of um, developing the the other projects, um, was it more pull on the part of the uh, airport or was it push from uh, companies that could offer technology? It was, um, I guess the hardest part about it was just coordinating the partners up front before we even launched the darn thing. Um, just identifying a corporate partner like Southwest Airlines, a key airline here um, or globally for that matter. But um, we want to um, diversify the type of uh, entities involved in the partnership to be able to, you know, source the type of needs in the market 
to effectively attract the right type of company. So there was just a bit of a bit of coordination up front. But once we had this thing um, um, off the ground, pardon the pun, but um, we it was pretty simple because um, we just identified, we confirmed the type of technologies that were being sought by our partners, the airport and Southwest Airlines. And from there, we put it into an application and pushed it out through our networks. And there's a lot of technology companies out there these days. So um, there's definitely, um, and there's not a lot of real world environments for companies to uh, test, validate, and hopefully scale when it comes to um, airports and air travel. So a lot of technologies um, can be focused on autonomous vehicles or automotive or other types of industries, but can actually have applications in the airport. But for these companies, how do you start pursuing a new market like an airport or air travel without having that playground to do so? So there is definitely not a lack of interest from companies uh, globally. So maybe you can give us a few examples, Charlie, of uh, some of the um, some of the recipients of the grants, either the first round or the second round. And I guess we've just, or you've just completed the second round of of grants as I understand it. But what are some examples? Yeah, for sure. So um, the first round, we are excited to award three companies uh, resources through the state of Michigan through our grant program, the Michigan Mobility Funding Platform, to uh, deploy uh, at the airport. So one is a company out of the UK called Arigo, and they actually have um, autonomous vehicle developments. However, they are focusing, they're starting to focus on how to automate ground support equipment. And um, it's kind of a big ask for the airport just to turn their critical operations over to autonomous, uh, like in a switch, which makes sense. So we supported Arigo to create a digital twin of the ground support equipment operations at the Grand Rapids airport. So it's a super cool looking digital twin of that of GSE at the airport so they can start looking at where there's bottlenecks and where they might be able to innovate uh, excuse me where they might be able to automate Charlie before you go further you're talking about ground support equipment could you define that what kind of equipment are we talking about that we're automating are we talking about plow trucks are we talking about uh, uh, vehicle or airplane uh, loaders or, or I mean when you say ground support equipment anything moving with an engine um, out on the yeah, out on the property, essentially. So all of the above, um, most notably baggage, carts, um, airplane movers, and forgive my layman's terms, but yeah, airplane movers, those little uh, machines tugs. that tugs. Yep. Thank you. Um, so really all of the above. And so was this kind of a, a simulation of the the ground support equipment that you could be used to evaluate? Yeah, they took all a bunch of data from the airport and their third-party fleet operators and incorporated it into their um, simulation software. And we're able to provide the airport a pretty robust analysis of um, their operations, where there's bottlenecks, and where they can potentially automate. I really love the one vehicle that I see on their website called Auto Patrol. It looks like some futuristic uh, cop car, if you will. But uh, my understanding is there's nobody in it, but it's got security cameras. And I guess it roves around the airport looking for whatever the, the, the patrol people would be looking for. Do, do you know what? I, I Based on what Max was just saying, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the uh, the air traffic controllers 
at Grand Rapids Tower, say say the ground controllers working, knowing that there's that there are vehicles out there doing their own thing. I mean, will they be restricted to just within a certain number of feet of the terminal? I mean, they, they wouldn't be out on a taxiway or anything like that, right? Not yet. Um, we'll see where things are at five, 10 years down the line. But um, that's why we started with a digital twin or a software simulation because the results from the project helped the airport understand what makes most sense as far as um, advancements near term. So most likely, and don't hold me to it, but it most likely it'll be fixed routes, uh, very fixed routes, repetitive tasks with um, machines that are out on the ground uh, near the airport Um Wherever it's most repetitive and most fixed route, that's likely where there's going to be the most automation near term. But they're not looking to, um, you know, turn everything upside down. I mean, these are critical operations that need to be conducted at the airport. So it's going to be a phased approach here. And um, they're also looking to electrify some of these um, pieces of equipment as well, but definitely in a phased approach. There was another grant that had to do with. I guess passenger mobility. Yeah, that was that was super cool. So um, apparently, the costs for the airport each month to wrangle and move around the wheelchairs in the airport is astronomical. So um, that was a big challenge and need that they had was to look at how they can begin automating um, moving people with disabilities or those that may not be able to move uh, themselves around the airport. So a company called Will, W-H-I-L-L, is an autonomous mobility company and a maker of personal autonomous uh, wheelchairs. And they deployed a fleet of their wheelchairs at the airport, uh, moving passengers passengers, um, that wanted to opt in to to test it out um, around the airport autonomously for a few months. Uh, The big thing there was that the company itself had not gone through security yet at the other airports that they deployed at. So that's a big challenge. How do you figure that out? And that's exactly what flight the program is there to do, to work with the FAA, work with the airport, work with security to determine when there are these um, low speed electric and autonomous uh, wheelchairs, how do they move through security? What's the best model to do that? So we are excited to help uh, make advancements in that regard. Anything you can tell us about that? Um, I don't have a ton of details uh, on like the process that they had going through uh, security. I'd have to follow up with you guys. But um, people were really excited about uh, the, the wheelchairs. They just didn't go fast enough. But I'd probably say the same thing. <laughs> and they also beeped every like five seconds. They allowed beeps. So – this is feedback for the company, though. This is how they learn what their customers would want. Yeah. How about a horn? I mean, I'd like <laughs> to a have pretty- a horn so I could just move people out of, honk, honk, get out of my way, wheelchair coming. Yeah. I want one of those horns with the big rubber bulb, you know, to uh, squeeze. <laughs> that, that could be fun. Um, you know, I um, am sorry to say that I have had to take wheelchairs through airports. Uh, in fact, on my last trip, I uh, uh, took a wheelchair through, uh, or at least a cart uh, through Newark and a wheelchair uh, through Heathrow. And going through Heathrow, as you know, is something that's not easy to do. It's huge. Um, and I would hate to be in an autonomous vehicle. 
I wouldn't know if I was going to the right place because I don't know where I'm going. I wouldn't really know for sure if it's taking me there. Uh, I, 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 getting through TSA, even with a wheelchair, it's incredibly difficult with somebody to guide me through. Uh, and, and I'm TSA pre-check. So it's, it's very, very simple. Um, when I see ideas like this, I get very concerned because I find that it's actually a way to cut costs and provide less service than it is to um, uh, really hasten things and make things better for a passenger. It's a way for an airline to, to save money uh, or, or an airport to save money. So I have great concerns about situations like this when they're being uh, discussed. And Charlie, I'm not trying to say anything negative about you or the program, but again, being one that's used this and had to use it with my mother and had to use it with my father and seeing it happen, I think it would be just awful, quite frankly. Was your experience recently with like your traditional wheelchairs though? Traditional wheelchair in Heathrow and it was carts through Newark. Sure. So there's obviously areas of improvement. So um, the airport in Grand Rapids is trying to address this. It's not going to happen overnight, but imagine if you could show up to the airport and there'll be someone uh, greeting you, and there's a fleet, a small fleet of autonomous or manual. You could also take the manual approach, wheelchairs, and there's a nice user interface iPad that shows you where your stops are going to be, and you automatically go into the quicker lane into security. Um, You can touch where you want to go in the airport, and it's just seamless. It won't happen overnight, but the opportunity to make your experience better is what the airport in Grand Rapids, the state of Michigan – and the companies involved want to do. The idea is, though, I don't want to touch an iPad. I want somebody to know where I'm going. <laughs> That's fair. I don't. I, I, you know, I, I want interaction with a person that knows what they're doing. So if I have questions, I can ask those questions as it comes. That's out. totally fair. I, I always tell people um, when it comes to autonomous vehicles, my father has a 67 Mustang. And I'm always going to want to drive that darn thing. So I got to be able to do that. You know, there has to be interoperability. Come and get me, Charlie. Sure. (laughs) You would like a ride in that, wouldn't you? So, yeah, Charlie, I think you're right. There's uh, obviously there's there's lots of opportunities uh, to improve processes. This is just well, obviously one of many at uh, at an airport in and around an airport. Um, And and this kind of approach is is an I think is an ideal way to explore some of the the possibilities for improvement. Each one is there's a certain amount of risk with it, but that's that's why having a grant program, I think, you know, allows these things to to move forward. Some of them a step at a time, some of them probably leaps and bounds, but but moving forward because there's the the funding for it. What are some of the other uh, recipients uh, that maybe some of the second round recipients that are more recent? Yeah, for sure. So um, one of the really, I mean, they're all pretty cool from my perspective, but a Michigan-based company called Data Speed. Um, they've traditionally been in the autonomous vehicle market. Uh, they've been one of the key partners for so many of these autonomous vehicle startups. Uh, we're seeing more intri- we're seeing more activity in the electric vehicle market right now, but there's still continued activity and investment in autonomous vehicles, whether that's semi-autonomous or fully. But, anyways, Data Speed, born and raised in Michigan, um, supported has supported many of these companies as they look to uh, integrate the sensors, cameras, and radar that are required to operate these vehicles. So, Data Speed is looking at different markets to. Um, essentially jump into and they're looking at uh, airports and warehouses facilities 
that have security operations. So um, they're using an autonomous truck to do perimeter security. Um, look at, essentially an autonomous truck would be going around the, the edges of the airport um, in one road, down the other road with cameras, radar sensors, and looking at where there might be breakdowns in the, in the fence or anything that might be concerning and sending that back to, you know, the, the control center back at the airport. So super cool to see, um, not as much, it's not something related to, um, you know, being in the air, but it's definitely critical to supporting a more efficient airport. Sure. Uh, just out of curiosity, what's the the duration of some of these projects? Or are they all over the map? You know, are some of them short and others long? Yeah. They're, what's the time frame? It can be, yeah, I'd say either at the minimum a month and the max six months. So it's, it can range. And we do a demo day at the each at the end of each round, and that's where we invite local um, individuals, anyone really interested um, nationwide, to come check out um, the demos from the companies at the airport. I'm curious. It says that uh, uh, through January, you've awarded two hundred ninety-five thousand dollars in grant state companies. I pulled out the calculator. That's about thirty-seven thousand dollars per company. Doesn't seem like a huge amount. What do, do they use the the money for typically? And are you providing on-site housing for any of the employees? That's a great question. And props to our partners. We have a partner locally in West Michigan um, called Seamless. Seamless, uh, the team there helped start multiple technology accelerators in West Michigan. So uh, we knew as a state, uh, as a state office, that we wouldn't have the bandwidth or the um, knowledge per se to effectively run this program. So we um, were able, through a contracting process, identify Seamless out of West Michigan Grand Rapids to help us run all things related to flight. And they do a great job. Uh, great, great point, Max. Um, I noticed the same thing. I guess I haven't brought it up, but they do. They make the dollar go pretty far. They do a lot of great projects, support companies. The companies see success for, from my opinion, compared to other projects that we see being deployed throughout the globe, um, relatively lower cost. So the projects usually, the funds usually go towards equipment, um, travel, um, you know, local contractors needed data packages, for example. As far as like the teams from the companies when they're in town, uh, we don't put them up anywhere, but they um, they do have co-working space at the airport. So when they're there for a few days or a week or a few months or a few weeks at a time, they have a place to work. They can collaborate with the different units within the airport. Uh, but uh, then we do send them out to figure out their own living situation. How do they uh, report back on the progress of the various projects uh, so that someone at uh, uh, the, the Economic Development Commission can say, yeah, yeah, you know, that autonomous vehicle thing, that's going pretty well, but uh, maybe this other one's not quite putting it all together the way we expected. After the review process is um, complete, we then make notifications to the applicants that are awarded resources and grants to deploy their projects. From there, they do um, go through a process where they finalize their milestones, their key objectives with our program manager, Seamless. Uh, so they usually have at least you know two to three 
key milestones and key objectives that they um, are, we're always tracking against when um, our program manager meets with them weekly. Um, and then the state of Michigan receives a monthly report uh, from our program manager with all of the uh, results of where everything's at. I wanted to ask you a question. I've been, you know, I've gone through all of the recipients and there's a, there's a bunch of great ones, but the one that really intrigues me, the one that I love the most that I'd like to hear more about is spotter. Um, you know, whenever I go to an airport, you know, I look at the, for a parking space if I'm looking for a parking space and I see this lot open and this lot closed. And sure, I go into an open lot, but it doesn't say where the spaces are and I can never find a space. And this looks like this program is going to solve that if it comes together. What can you tell us about Spotter? Yeah, so cool. I think the coolest part about it is that well, outside the fact that there's a huge need for it and the you know customers, you know, people that drive wherever – are always frustrated about parking. So they're addressing a big need um, in general. But I think the coolest part about it is that this, uh, the founder of Spotter is um, born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's actually just, he just graduated high school. So he started Spotter um, as a high school project. No kidding. Um, wow. Props to the Grand Rapids parking department. They worked with him to, uh, to implement his technology in one of the, one of the parking garages in Grand Rapids during his high school time. And then uh, he's now continued to grow and he's looking to deploy his sensor technologies, essentially a, a sensor at parking spots and then an app where you'd be able to see where there's uh, vacancy. Uh, so just the story around a local entrepreneur taking their ideas from napping to market, leveraging support in the ecosystem that we're building here in Michigan is pretty cool. That just sounds great because it'll be so wonderful. Basically, what it does is it lets you know where there's an empty space. And boy, that's, that'll make things a lot simpler. And that's great that it's such a, a young entrepreneur who's uh, behind this. It, you know, it, it does sound somehow, as you were describing it, Charlie, it, it seemed somewhat familiar. I don't know if we've maybe heard of him before or talked about him before in the past. I, I'm not sure. But, yeah, it does sound like a great area to look at. Another one that catches my eye, my eye is baggage delivery because that's – I have big soapboxes, these guys have heard, on baggage at, at airports. Uh, what was that project – or what is that project about? Yeah, so um, that was a cool one, uh, especially with amount, the amount of um, – there's so many different terms for it, but advanced aerial mobility, AAM, drones, UAS, you guys know um, from our previous conversation, Max, there's just a lot of terms for um, drones and advanced aviation as far as low altitude movement of goods. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunity here in Michigan in that regard. And uh, we are really gung-ho as far as um, making Michigan a, a leader in that space um, for companies globally and to have that help communities as far as quicker movement of goods and vital goods for for example medical supplies but um this is a company called eva eva they're actually a european-based startup that's looking to set up um, their first north american office and they have these landing pads for drones and a software technology that allows drones any type of drones any manufacturer of drones could implement their software and be able to uh, see where these landing pads are and be able to safely land and um, 
deliver the packages that they are providing. So if it's a drone that only has a payload of 20 pounds, well, that's only something that's 20 pounds. But um, the goal for this project was to test how that might, the takeoff location, how that might be incorporated with traditional air traffic. Are there use cases with local hospitals or local um, hotels, for example, that may, you know, if someone forgets their bag at, you know, bag at their hotel and their flight's taken off in five minutes, in 10 minutes, they don't have time to go through security again. But if um, maybe there's a way for a drone to take it, you know, we're not, we're not quite there yet, but we're taking the steps to figure that out with EVA. We've had two rounds uh, so far. Uh, is the state of Michigan, um, do they still have the appetite to provide money for these grants going forward? Do you see uh, more rounds in the future? Yeah, as long as we can. Uh, we do see um, success. We see results, tangible results. So um, we are going through our third round of um, reviews for the projects that have come through our application portal. Um, we have a network of test sites. This is our most recently launched test site. So um, the state of Michigan has a test test site network, including ground-based automotive testing, drones, airport, parking garages, um, et cetera. And these test sites often affiliated with universities, not in this case, but um, they're a great way to spur entrepreneurship. And if we can track the results, we feel that we can continue to gain momentum and gain support. And the big thing is uh, for any listeners out there, if there's a way to get involved that you see in flight, whether you're a large, you're with a large corporation or whatever type of company you might be with, if you see an opportunity to innovate and to partner with the Grand Rapids Airport in the state of Michigan, we're here for that. We definitely want to see um, continued interest from fully established companies that may be able to also put some skin in the game and support the growth of not only the companies, but their own innovation objectives. Fantastic. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, air mobility corridor, but before we uh, shift gears a little bit, do any of you guys have any questions for Charlie or some comments? I I know this is going to sound really stupid, but when you first joined us, you mentioned the uh, drones, I believe, that were spring, uh, you know, disinfectant in the terminals or or something Mm -hmm. to that effect. I, I was trying to imagine how that would actually work? Uh, were there people in the terminal at the time or how did that work? Yeah. So flight forward launchpad for innovative technologies and entrepreneurship. Um, flight was created um, after the success of a one-off project at the Grand Rapids airport. And it wasn't a um, aerial drone. Um, some people do consider drones being ground-based. So, but essentially it's a ground-based robot um, that was deployed at the airport. And um, the team, the company went in to map the whole airport, the terminals, and it was put on a fixed route when it, you know, went down the main path inside the terminal, if you were, if you will. And it took turns left and right to go spray the different seats at the different stops it needed to make and um, use, it actually autonomously did that. And then when it was done with its operations, it went back and docked and was able to charge overnight. So it wasn't wandering through the airport, just spring uh, disinfectant sort of willy-nilly. It had a specific target in mind. Correct. A specific target and a great point, actually. I, I, when I said that it goes back to it went back to its docking station 
actually, um, they determined that 4 a.m. was the most, the least traffic, the time that had the least amount of people walking through the airport. So every night at 4 a.m., this little robot would just come off its dock and do its route throughout a few terminals in the Grand Rapids airport autonomously, spraying disinfectant, FDA approved, and head back to go to bed. Kind of like a Roomba. <laughs> exactly. Seriously, that is very similar. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I was wondering, can you kind of scale for us uh, mid-sea how many people are involved? And tell us more about your role as technology activation manager. Are you involved in just the flight program or are you involved in other programs within uh, you know, mid-sea as well? Yeah, so um, METC, gosh, probably has almost 200 employees. It's the um, main economic development arm for the state of Michigan. It has programs and teams focused on large incentive projects with large companies looking to grow in North America to set up facilities to hire 500,000 plus employees. It has teams focused on um, helping entrepreneurs, helping downtown districts. So very robust um, agency through the state of Michigan. Uh, the team I'm on, the Office of Future Mobility and Electrification, partly through the MEDC, is a, is a small team, but... Um, we're a mighty team, so we have four or five folks um, within multiple state agencies. Uh, my colleague, um, Catherine Snorrison, is our managing director, and then our our fearless leader, Trevor Paul, is our chief mo- mobility officer. So Trevor is the uh, chief mobility officer for the state of Michigan. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, Max, I forgot your last part of the question. Yeah, tell me about uh, what you do as technology activation manager. Is it just for flight or also for other programs that are going on? Yeah, so it's um, definitely not just for flight, um, but I get super excited about flight and very fortunate to have the partners involved that we do. But um, I guess uh, day-to-day can be, I guess it's always the same in that you never know what you're going to do. You're always connecting, I'm always connecting with new companies and new partners locally in the public and private sectors. So we see public-private partnerships as imperative to drive uh, progress in local communities, but also to spur economic development opportunities. So um, it could be, you know, meeting with investors in the West Coast to learn about the portfolio of of startups they've invested in and how they want to help those startups grow in Michigan. And then from there, we learn about, okay, based on these companies, not just startups, all sizes, based on the objectives and the capabilities of companies that have a real interest in moving to Michigan, where are they best suited to uh, get plugged into if they're when I hear someone talking about um, aviation and airports, I think of flight. When I think about someone talking about maritime and uh, freight and uh, autonomous search and rescue, I think of the Michigan Tech Great Lakes Research Center up in uh, the Upper Peninsula. When it comes to parking solutions, how do we make parking more efficient um, and uh, better for our environment, for example? We think about the Detroit Smart Parking Lab. Um, this is a partnership with Ford, Bosch, and Bedrock. Um, so about public-private partnership, identifying a real-world environment where there's challenges that need to be solved, local entities in the public and private sector that come together that um, align on a vision. And then uh, from there, we then go out to work with companies and partners globally that um, want to get involved. So the Test Site Network um, has about seven or eight test sites throughout the state of Michigan, but we also support companies that maybe don't need a test site. Maybe they're ready to actually deploy in a real world scenario right off the bat. Maybe that doesn't mean that they're going commercially 
commercial operations where it's a multi-year service, but um, there's a what we call a real-world deployment grant through the Michigan Mobility Funding Platform, and that provides grant funding to um, accepted applicants that want to deploy their mobility solutions in a real-world environment within Michigan communities. The criteria there is that they need to find a use case in Michigan, whether it's providing better transportation to medical appointments, providing quicker access to uh, delivery of vital medical supplies, or better charging station infrastructure. So a lot going on. I could go on and on, but it's uh, it's what keeps me up at night and wakes me up in the morning is that I never really know, and I love it. It sounds like a really exciting kind of a kind of a career, Charlie, where you, I mean, you get to be exposed and to so many different things and learn about so many different things. Um, but let's talk a bit, little bit about the Michigan-Ontario Air Mobility Corridor. This is something that uh, David and I talk about on, on the UAV Digest is Air Mobility Corridor. So maybe define what that means for our audience. Yeah, happy to. So a couple of years back, we started seeing some companies in Michigan developing drones unmanned aerial systems, UAS um, platforms, they call it, that are aerial and operate in space or not space, but low altitude um, um, operations um, in the air. So um, that's essentially what we call aerial mobility. And um, some folks that might have more technical expertise might um, provide different terminology, but it's pretty standard across um, industry the industry that um, aerial mobility is the most broad way of putting it, but it's really uh, moving people and or goods um, in the air like we've been doing for so long, but looking at more efficient, um, more accessible and safer ways to do that. Uh, So we started seeing a lot of interest in drones. So um, pretty much under 500 feet and the FAA, I believe has um, a certain certification for those, that size drone. But essentially what we realized was we need to figure out how to enable beyond visual line of sight drone delivery, BVLAS, another acronym, but uh, it is what it is. But uh, BVLAS is super important to um, unlock tremendous benefits when it comes to drones because currently for the most part, it's uh, when a drone's operating, it needs to be within visual line of sight of the operator of the drone. However, um, the state of Michigan, so our office, along with MDOT Aeronautics, the Michigan Department of Transportation's Aeronautics Division, we came together to figure out what we need to do to unlock um, BVLAS operations, at least maybe in one or two or three corridors or regions off the bat. Um so uh, we put out a, an RFP for um, a contractor to come in to conduct a feasibility study to look at what are the ground risks in cert- certain regions of Michigan. What are the ground risks? What are the infrastructure upgrades needed? How is the technology interoperable with ground-based systems, a.k.a. automotive? What are the use cases? What are the benefits? What are the community needs that drones c- might be able to support? So uh, we are happy to be able to um, award um, a project. Essentially, the RFP recipient was um, a local startup called Airspace Link that's really making huge waves in the drone software market. And then also their partner, Tales, T-H-A-L-E-S, a large 
communications provider in the aviation space. So they came in, they've been, uh, they're getting super close to wrapping up the feasibility study, but they are looking at, again, those aforementioned um, aspects of what a drone corridor would require, essentially a skyway. Um, so we looked at, we're looking at Northwest Michigan around Traverse City. It's a more rural region. Um, there's probably agriculture industries that have, um, are impacted potentially for, hopefully the goal is for that to be impacted for, um, as a positive. Uh, but we're also looking at Southeast Michigan, uh, for example, Ann Arbor to Detroit. And then the third area would be from Detroit to Windsor. But the goal is to create a blueprint, a playbook for the infrastructure required, how to get the FAA approvals, um, et cetera, for other regions in Michigan and our border crossings to allow for beyond visual line of sight drone delivery. And so we're really excited about the findings that um, are being uncovered and the report that's coming shortly. And while that's happening, we are doing a lot of testing. Companies are uh, doing within visual line of sight testing, um, working with hospitals and grocery store chains to understand what they might utilize drones for um, and doing some testing while we get this fully operational beyond visual line of sight corridor or corridors set up. And again, this will take some time, but um, we do see a lot of advancements and, um, you know, major headway taking place here in Michigan when it comes to advanced aerial mobility currently. Is your expectation that the uh, corridors would be used for testing purposes or for delivery purposes? So for commercial delivery, operate commercial. commercial delivery. Yep, okay. absolutely. So currently a lot of testing is underway right now. We have resources to support any companies working on drone testing or But the idea would be to have multiple corridors with ground infrastructure, radar, communication devices, et cetera, and a control center. Um, We want them to be set up. We want them to be approved by the FAA, which um, deferring to MDOT Aeronautics, they have a great relationship with the FAA, but it's a slow walk and we're not pushing in in any regard, working collaboratively on what the best system would be knowing that it's not going to happen overnight. But the goal is to have multiple corridors in Michigan where there's key logistic traffic. Um, and then working with companies as large as uh, Amazon, FedEx, UPS, et cetera, to have them deploy in these regions, to invest in these regions, to utilize these corridors and to benefit not only industry, but the state of Michigan. Oh, good. That's um, It does sound like a long-term uh, kind of a project, given that uh, you know we, we still have some... A regulatory framework that's needed from from the FAA sure. and you know other things um, that are obviously being worked yep. more slowly than some people would like, but uh, these things do take time because of course you know, yeah. yeah you're talking about uh, commercial delivery drones in the national airspace so yep and a lot of the folks that we work with on this um, are traditional aerospace individuals that's where they've uh, grew up and that's what they're that's what they know, and they uh, we lean on them a lot to understand like the best way to approach this. And yeah, it's going to take some time, but um, there's also certain use cases that can be achieved near term. Um, for example, let's say that there is something that's needed super quick in Michigan's Upper Peninsula at a tribal community, or let's say there's um, something that's needed very very quick at Mackinac Island. How do we get something there super super quick? If there's very limited ground risk, we should be able to do that. The technology is there. When it comes to urban 
aerial mobility, that's where we have some work to go, but we are doing it here in Michigan. So anyone listening, if you're interested, we're open for business. Yeah, especially things like uh, medical supplies or blood samples that need to get to a lab to be um, analyzed where the you know a ground transportation would would sure. just take too long or those are all great applications for this technology. Well, really fascinating. Uh, Charlie, uh, what can you tell us about um, resources that uh, our listeners might find helpful, uh, ways to contact you know, you or the organization, um, what, what can you uh, offer up for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, when it comes to mobility, anything related to transportation, please check out michiganbusiness.org backslash OFME backslash. So anything related to economic development, company support resources, uh, that would be through the MEDC, the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. And that's at Michigan Business. Dot org. Again, michiganbusiness.org. There's various different resources and teams that are there to support. And there's often a button that you can click to get in touch. So we're always happy to chat. Terrific. And of course, we'll have those links in the show notes for this episode. So if you're listening to this while you're driving, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to try to remember. Uh, we'll have all that in the show notes. Charlie Tyson, we really want to appreciate you taking the time to to come on the show and talk with us. It's been uh, really fascinating. I'm, I'm kind of envious of your job. Maybe I alluded to that earlier. Just uh, it, I, I love um, uh, jobs where you never know exactly what's going to happen that day. That's my ideal too. But but I'm too old, so you don't have to worry about me coming in and trying to steal your job. I mean, I'm envious of your guys's experience and knowledge. And thank you so much for having me. I'd say that. The best thing about my job is just helping entrepreneurs find success and working and participating in things like this. So thank you for helping highlight the different things we're doing in Michigan. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Hey, good luck to you guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Some of the aviation news from the past week. We have an NTSB preliminary report on the November 12th, 2022, the midair collision between the B-17G and the P-63. Rob, it's a uh, fairly short uh, preliminary report. What were your takeaways? I th- I think, uh, well, of course, any of these kinds of reports are always uh, sad. But uh, it, it uh, you know, we did talk last week about the limited visibility out of the P-63 and uh, how that may have affected, uh, you know, when the pilot had the wing up, he may not have seen the B-17 or uh, uh, if he was going too fast or whatever. But but what the uh, report seemed to show was that uh, when it came to altitudes, uh, th- th- somehow the coordination just didn't happen uh, before the flights took place. So that because uh, usually... And I think uh, uh, Richard McSpadden at AOPA mentioned this uh, during his uh, brief on the accident, that uh, when these aircraft are traveling in shows like this, there's always a little bit of vertical separation. I mean, to to a guy like me who's uh, used to a thousand feet of uh, uh, separation between aircraft, I mean, to them, you know, 150 feet might be plenty. But it seems like somehow this just didn't get done. And uh, so we're, we're going to have to look to see if it was uh, 
uh, were they under some kind of time pressure or uh, did someone think that someone else had done it or we, we just don't know. But uh, uh, it sounds like this is probably going to be a, a human error kind of issue. And it seems to be pointing at the air boss to a certain extent, although we don't really, really know. The line of, of bombers were on one track. Track's not the word they've been using. I just can't think of what the word is. A flight line. Flight line. The, the bombers were on one and the fighters were on uh, a different one. The, Correct. The bombers were in a, on a line 500 feet from the show line uh, from the crowd. And the, and the, uh, the faster fighters were 1,000 feet from the crowd. So 500-foot separation between them. But apparently the, the Airbus directed the, flight, uh, the fighter formation to, first of all, change their configuration and go into a trail formation, but then fly in front of the bomber formation and proceed near the 500-foot show line. So, I mean, the way I read this is, is he had the, I don't know if it's a he or a she, the Airbus had the, you know, the two tracks crossing each other. And there was never any, apparently, any conversation about this in advance. There was never any preparation for for this sort of, you know, deconfliction. And we see what the result was. So I, I, I don't know. The line in there that, that uh, I think is really important is that the NTSB is saying, Eric Weiss, the spokesperson for the NTSB, said that the agency is uh, not only trying to determine the sequence of events, but it's examining whether air shows normally have altitude deconfliction plans. Right. Yeah. Now, they do. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that, that's, that's the way air shows are coordinated and Typically, as you said, Max, that is what the air boss does in briefings ahead of time. We're not saying that the air boss didn't do this or, or you know, we're not casting aspersions at this point. But uh, it seems like some kind of briefing either didn't happen or was missed. Yeah. The line that actually really bothers me the most out of this particular article that we're getting out of a uh, Channel 8 from, uh, from Tampa, Florida, is a second to the last paragraph. And it says the air show the air show collision came three years after the crash of a bomber in Connecticut that killed seven. And amid ongoing concern about the safety of shows involving older warplanes, now obviously we have personal interest in that particular crash for many reasons, but this accident had nothing to do with the former one, and has nothing to do with ongoing concerns of the safety of older warplanes because there is never a concern or rarely a concern about the safety of those things and one has nothing to do with the other and it's just a kind of thing that drives me crazy about news well this was one of my you know my initial fears the first thing i thought of the first thing that came to my mind um after this this mid-air collision was you know it's another b17 and are people going to view this as a problem with warbirds flying in air shows or in demonstration flights or or whatever and are we going to see uh, the warbird flights um, impacted by sort of public outcry or you know somebody thinking that this is all somehow related and we should ban all these airplanes from flying altogether so yeah i i'm <laughs> i hope that doesn't happen i hope we don't go down that road 
Well, related to that, I think, is the question of whether the flying public is going to want to continue to pay four or five, you know, $600 a ride in the airplanes when there's a record of multiple of them going down. I, I think that's going to put just a little bit of a damper on the, you know, the number of people interested in, you know, paying for rides in these aircraft. Yeah, which funds the, to a large extent, funds the, uh, you know, the... the well, to follow up on what Mike has said, too, though, the, the uh, 17 that uh, crashed out east a few years ago, it was tracked to... Uh, uh, another uh, additional human error, bad maintenance. It, these these airplanes are difficult enough to keep flying, but the uh, uh, aerospace technicians have got to stay on them all the time uh, to make sure that something doesn't go sour. And unfortunately, that's what happened in the one out east. So we'll uh, we'll have to wait for the investigation to uh, to proceed. I don't know. Uh, with what frequency we'll see information from the NTSB, but it's all, it always feels less frequent than, you know, we'd kind of like uh, to to be the case. We always want answers sooner than they can really be ready. All right, next item. Too bad David's not here. Why would America want to retire the F-22? I like the F-22 Raptor, Rob. I saw this pop up, and I thought, we're, we're retiring it. I mean, I was just getting used to telling the difference between a uh, an F-22 and an F-35. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, to me, but again, I, what I did not know that the story pointed out was that uh, uh, somebody chopped the production run of the F-22s some years back. And there's only a 175 of them, I guess, that were built. And but. Beside the fact that they want to get rid of the 22, what I don't understand, and maybe you guys do because you know more about uh, some of these government contracting issues, but how do you prevent the same thing happening five years from now with the F-35? And then somebody's saying, well, you know, it really wasn't up to the standards of the new generation of warplanes that are needed because now we're... uh, or in a conflict with China, or or Taiwan is, or I, I I don't understand where the actual fighters are going to be. Well, that's actually a pretty easy answer, Rob. Uh, in terms of why how that's not going to happen with the F thirty five is because we've sold the F thirty five all over the world to all sorts of different countries, and so there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, and there will be more, and they're still in production. Where the F twenty two. Like you said, there's only like 170 of them, 180 of them, and we would not sell them to anyone else, even though other countries clamored for it, because we were afraid of the technology. So the F-35 is probably going to be here for a long time, and uh, and part of it is the whole development issue. They they started looking at the, uh, the F-35, the F-22, and developing it right after they finished the F-15 back in 1985, but then... It came out, really came into production in 1997, and we haven't had another uh, another fighter other than the F-35 since then. But if you go back to the Century series, you know, back from 1954 to 1959, we had six planes. There was the F-100 that was in service for years, the F-102, the F-101, the F-104, the F-105, and the F-106, all of which were in service for many years. But now it takes forever to develop new equipment. And we're, the government is paying for the development where in the past the 
corporations were building the aircraft and then trying to sell it to the government. Well, I think, yeah, I think I agree. I, I think the, um, the, the situation changed as the F-22 was, was going into production. I mean, we had the, you know, the, end, the so-called end of the Cold War. And so a, an air superiority fighter, which the F-22 was, was seen as less useful when you start talking about fighting in Afghanistan or non first world kinds of uh, kinds of conflicts and so it, you know its its role was never it wasn't going to survive in terms of its usefulness on a broad scale also you had the F35 supposedly you know coming along and so the F22 ended up being seen kind of as a transition plane a lot of people th- would comment, you know, why do we need to build F-22s when we're going to have an F-35 uh, soon? And, oh, by the way, the F-35 is going to be perfect for the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines. And so do we really need all these F-22s? So they, yeah, they, they canceled it. I think there was 186 airframes that were that were actually um, delivered. And by cutting the the volume, well, the you know, the unit cost is very high because you've got to distribute the, you know the same fixed costs across fewer airframes so the prices are expensive but the F22's avionics are dated it's just unfortunate because the F22 is such a great plane i mean if you if you watch the F22 demo team perform at an air show where they never demonstrate the full capabilities of an airplane I mean, you will be impressed. If you've never seen that, you will be impressed. I mean, I've had pilots standing next to me watching the F-22 demo flight, and the pilots say to me, airplanes can't do that. It flies sideways. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, so when you've got two engines with uh, thrust-vectored nozzles on afterburners running, published, something like combined 70,000 pounds of thrust, uh, you can do a lot of interesting things with it. But, you so know, the, why do we? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say the, the, the military and the government are always planning on how they're going to fight the last war. Uh, after World War One, we started building battleships, you know, and after World War Two, we built the B-36. And now after Afghanistan, we don't need the F-22 anymore. But when we finally something develops with China, which is probably going to happen at some point, you know. They're developing aircraft that are going to be... Dogfights may come back. Who knows for sure? And I do wish David were here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we weren't going to talk about it, but the uh, the B-21 was, quote, unveiled. I'll say, quote, because you really couldn't see very much of it the way they, the way they did it. Um, but one of the interesting things about the... Uh, that bomber, the B-21, besides the fact that it's going to have Pratt & Whitney engines on it, F-35 engines, actually, without afterburners, is that the development time was quite a bit shorter than we've seen for these other programs. I think in part due to the fact that they used, I don't want to say necessarily off-the-shelf parts, but almost. They didn't push a lot of technologies. They didn't create a lot of new technologies to you know, accomplish science fiction kinds of, uh, you know, flight characteristics and all. That's because if you look at it, and you guys will get the joke, and if I need to, I can explain it to our listeners. But when I looked at it, I said, oh, look, it's a B-1SP. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the 747 SP. It's like short and squat. And that's what, exactly what the B-21 looks like. I've also heard somebody say it really should have been called the B-2.1. I said B-1SP. I'm sorry. I meant B-2SP. B-2, yes, yeah, yes. B-2. So, but the the reason I brought that up is, you know, to your point, Micah, about, you know, always building for the last war is you, the solution or a solution is you need to have a, a much shorter development cycle so that we can, you know, respond much more quickly and not spend decades developing something that by the time it's developed is, uh, doesn't meet the need. Uh, and I think the, um, the B-21 may be an example of that. So, so what kind of, uh, Aircraft are on the aircraft carriers deployed in the Pacific, let's say. Is that F-18s? F-18s and F-35s are, in terms of our fighters, we cut the F-14 out uh, and said that the F-A-18 would be able to replace that, which, yeah, kind of. Okay. The Super Hornets, right? Yeah. Another aircraft being developed, the, the Boeing 777X. We see report. We have a couple of articles. One from uh, Flying Magazine that the Triple Seven X test flights have been suspended over an engine issue. GE Aerospace says we are reviewing a technical issue that occurred during GE Nine X. That's the engine designation. GE Nine X post certification engineering testing, and we are closely coordinating with Boeing on our findings to support their return to flight testing. Do you know what I love about this story? Hmm. how little it says about what the actual problem was. Yeah, yeah, they don't, they don't. I, I read it a couple of times, and I said, so something broke somewhere in where the They're not really saying. Turbine, I, sec, I, nothing. I did find one, uh, one source that said um, that during a boroscope inspection, uh, and this was on their high-time test flight engine, that there was uh, some kind of a temperature alert um, which I guess precipitated the borescope inspection, and they saw something in there that they didn't like. That's what I had read, that there was some kind of a temperature warning, and so they decided to do the, the boroscope, which is uh, very similar to a colonoscopy for an engine. Yeah, ex- actually, it's <laughs> yeah, it is very close, actually. Um, don't don't talk about that. My I, doctor called me today and said, no, no, we don't want to hey, Rob, <laughs> it's time for your colonoscopy. Yeah, yeah. Boy, is that fate? I mean, or, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very frequently, based on my experience, when there's something a little bit off in a jet engine, it shows up at least initially uh, as a high temperature at some location. So when you see a high temp, these things are instrumented. You would not believe how many sensors are on these you know, test engines. So it goes back to, to uh, GE, and they'll take a look at it and figure out, what the issue is, what happens next, who knows? It could be anything from, uh, you know, it's okay, or, all right, we needed this slightly modified inspection for this condition, or all the way to, we have a big problem and we need to do some redesigning here. But it only happened on this one specific uh, That's example. my understanding, and it's on the high-time engine. So it's the engine that's, the test engine that's been running the longest of all the engines that are on the 777X. And it's not unusual to have these kind of engine problems on new aircraft. The, the 747 had some, some major issues with the first uh, Pratt & Whitney's. Uh, there's an apocryphal story about that, flying it. And 
with with a Pratt and Whitney executive on board until uh, and, and blowing out uh, two of the three engines until they said, "Okay, okay, we'll fix it." <laughs> we'll fix it, yeah. The GE nine X is giant. This thing is huge. It has a hundred thirty two inch fan uh, diameter fan. So if you if if you follow commercial high bypass turbofan engines, this thing is big. This is I don't think there's a uh, yeah, I don't think there's an engine larger diameter than than this. Um, rated at 110,000 pounds of thrust, so it's uh, it's large now. So it's all sourced on on this aircraft. Rolls Royce and uh, Pratt and Whitney proposed engines for the 777X, but uh, GE was selected in 2013. Interestingly, the the Pratt submission was for a geared turbofan. This would have been like the by far and away the larger than any other geared turbofan. And by the way, 132 inches is more than four meters. Um, so uh, that, that's, that's pretty much, pretty high. Yeah, that's a big engine. Be- because you live near the Canadian border, are you, uh, are you forced to use uh, metric? Uh, <laughs> no, not at all. I, I was going to explain that, that it's big enough so that I could stand in the engine and put you on my shoulders, Rob, and we still wouldn't be able to reach the top. But I thought that, <laughs> that four meters might be a little better. Yeah. All right. Hey, we've got a paddle your own canoe article because we almost always do. Max T, what have we got here? Well, we we love this website because they always have all kinds of uh, great stories. Uh, This one, of course, is interesting. It says the fascinating Me Too clause that will guarantee Delta air pilots the best pay in the industry. And it talks about how there is a contract which has not been approved yet uh, by the, the pilots, but which apparently is coming up for vote soon, in which they will have their pay raised about 34% cumulatively over the next four years which is pretty darn nice. Uh, interesting about how it's structured. They're going to receive an immediate 18% pay raise plus a one-time payment equivalent to 22% of everything they earn between 2020 and 22. Uh, so I'm not sure if that's two years or three years. It sounds like three years, uh, but that's a number of months of salary on a one-time Basis. And I think that's the kind of thing that companies like to do rather than raising salaries. It's easier to give kind of a one-time bump that goes away after that one time. It doesn't just keep continually raising the base of the, the pay. But then afterwards, they would also get a 5% pay raise after the first year and then two 4% pay raises over the, the following two years. So 34%. The next thing is what is really, really cool, Max. Well, yeah, this one's really kind of interesting. This is the Me Too clause, which essentially says that the airline guarantees to beat any deal from that any other airline that negotiates, such as American or United, and beat that by 1%. So essentially that says, hey, if uh, the United pilots get a better deal, then the Delta pilots get the same deal plus an extra 1%. The real question in my mind becomes what happens when United or American is able to negotiate the same deal? Are we then in an upward spiral? <laughs> where basically, but, but don't you think that the, the, the CEOs of, of Delta, American, and United somehow 
communicated with each other before Delta released no, this? No, 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 no. No, that, that you don't that, think that, that happened. That's called collusion. Yeah, I, I mean Sherman Antitrust Act. People go to jail for that kind of stuff, or at least they used to. <laughs> so, no, I don't. I don't think that to happened. I mean, certainly some kinds of signaling can occur in the industry, but I'm sure they did not talk about this explicitly. Mm. In, in an odd sort of way, it kind of reminds me of the problem of spiraling hangar rents at different airports. Airports these days have a process where when they evaluate their hangar rents every year or so, they do a survey and they look at the price of hangars at all the surrounding airports. And then based on that average, they bump their rates up. And of course, the other rates, you know, the other airports do that as well. And I think the problem is that creates an upward spiral. And I think this 1% uh, you know, bonus uh, could potentially do the same thing if the other airlines try and adopt the same. Yeah. But if you're a gambler, what this means is if you have any place to travel, buy your tickets now because airfares are going up. It's a big increase. Now, the Delta pilots have been trying to uh, get a new contract since 2019. Um, so uh, and I don't think they've had any increases since then. The pandemic, well, the the post pandemic situation puts the pilots in the in the unions in in the driver's seat. I think, uh, in terms of negotiating power, right now, I think the unions are are uh, more able to dictate the terms of a contract of a labor contract than the airlines are. I mean, there've been other times in the past where it's been it's been reversed, but with you know, pilot shortages and you know the demand up and and all of that, so uh, I, I think that's maybe contributing towards the you know the union being able to negotiate a contract like this. Um, I, another thing is I, I don't know how Delta's pilot pay right now compares to the other to American and United. You know when when we see this huge huge number uh, percentage thirty four percent effective pay increase. I don't know if that puts them on. On parity, or or not? I don't know where they stand relative. Probably to puts them ahead. I I, I, I would think so. I yeah, for there to be that much of a difference, I can't imagine that they would be thirty four percent behind the other airlines. Well, this doesn't all come into effect in one year. I mean, this is over the course of what three years is it, or four? I forgot what it said. It's exactly. four years. Four yeah. years, I but mean, uh, but a first even an eighteen percent rise. I can't believe they're eighteen percent behind. That's you know, that's a tremendous amount of money. Eighteen percent of your salary. So, yeah, and I wonder if this uh, Me Too concept is uh, we're going to see more of that. I I don't know if any of the existing labor contracts with not only just pilots but flight attendants, uh, you know, others, other airline workers. I don't know if any of them have Me Too clauses right now, but uh, maybe this is something we're going to see more of. And, and like, you know, like you guys were saying, you can't have everybody have a Me Too clause. Well, not practically. And, and and that's kind of, I guess, what I was thinking about when I completely forgot about the Antitrust Act. But I, I guess I was thinking that maybe somehow the CEOs had communicated in some fashion or their people had communicated, said, okay, Delta, we'll go, you know, okay, let's Let's see what happens, man. But this better not get out of control uh, or we're all going to get screwed. Uh, I, I realize they can't say that directly, but there are ways that people can imply those kinds of concerns. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be explicit. Sometimes you can run afoul of antitrust laws 
if the effect is anti-competitive, even if you didn't specifically or explicitly talk about, you know, labor contracts. Or, Unless or you're a politician. Mm. Well, I don't think it would be to any of the company's benefit to have that conversation. Uh, what are they going to say? Yeah, sure, Delta, you go ahead. We don't mind if you get paid more than our pilots. <laughs> I, just, I can't imagine that, you know, that benefits uh, anyone to even have that conversation. Okay, so um, you may recall in March of this year, 2022, uh, there was an Oklahoma Air National Guard F-16 that crashed. They were on a two-jet homeland defense training mission. They call it an aerospace control alert. This is where you have a, a unauthorized aircraft come in. It needs to be intercepted. Max, there was some. Uh, there was an investigation with kind of an interesting result. Yeah, this comes from news.yahoo.com. Fighter pilot who tailed a civilian plane blamed for destroying F-16. I got to tell you, these kinds of uh, incidents tick me off to no end. Uh, and so essentially what happened was two pilots were out from the, uh, I believe it's the Oklahoma Air National Guard flying a pair of F-16s. They were flying uh, practice intercepts in which one of the pilots was pretending to be an unknown aircraft and the other aircraft was seeking to uh, get close to him and identify him. And then at some point, the uh, pilot who ultimately ended up ejecting out of the aircraft and destroying it decided, hey, look, there's a general aviation aircraft over there flying at a holding pattern at 1,700 feet. Let's just go sneak up on him unannounced to ATC, to the GA pilot himself, or to anybody else, and let's just, you know, play silly games intercepting this poor unsuspecting uh, pilot. And not only did they get closer than they were supposed to, apparently they're only allowed to get as close to 1,000 feet. They were instead 300 feet above this GA aircraft. Uh, so they broke the rules uh, to begin with. They may have scared the living daylights out of this pilot if he had a traffic system that could see that uh, an aircraft was converging with him at a very close altitude. And then to make matters worse, uh, when they decided to end this, the uh, the pilot pushed a wrong button uh, in the aircraft. The aircraft started to shudder, and he decided within a few seconds, oh my gosh, something's wrong with the aircraft, and he punched out of the aircraft, destroying, I believe it's a $27 million uh, aircraft. Um, the report itself gives, gives the details, and it says that uh, when the intercept was completed, and it was climbing in altitude, he went to raise the trailing edge flaps by flipping the alternate flaps switch from the extend position to the normal position, but instead he hit the wrong switch. He instead went to the digital backup switch, which did something entirely different. Uh, it actually turned off the flight controls laws of the, uh, the aircraft uh, to the default state. Uh, and so <laughs> the aircraft started to shudder. The aircraft was still flyable if he had uh, known what it was that he had done. But instead, uh, you know, this entire series of events resulted in a destroyed aircraft. I have read in the past about other cases where civilian air, uh, pardon me, military aircraft have done similar kinds of things. I remember a, a caravan, which is a Cessna 208, pretty big aircraft, was flying somewhere in the southwest 
and found himself, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, seemingly in a conflict with a, a military aircraft that had decided to play games with him. And this aircraft, you know, started in a, in a massive descent, you know, more than a thousand feet per minute to try and escape, uh, you know, this uh, aircraft that was chasing him. So all I can say is not cool. I mean, this, this to me just pisses me off. You know, military pilots in your airplanes, you're supposed to be responsible. This is not that unusual. I've heard from uh, other military sources that fighter pilots were running mock mock intercepts on civilian airplanes for years. Uh, Luckily, they don't get caught. And I think what you mentioned, the, uh, the, the traffic avoidance software that most airplanes have these days would say, uh, hey, uh, Frank, uh, there's something coming up from your uh, 7 o'clock position, and it's really moving, and it's right at our altitude. Where in the old days, you, you could you could pull this on somebody and say, we're going to pull off and we get a quarter mile behind the guy, and he's never going to know we were there anyway. But now they're, they have snitch software. Sounds to me that it really... The only thing that it might have had to do with what happened with the civilian aircraft, if the civilian aircraft was even aware of it, was that we don't know. I, I don't couldn't read in the report what altitude altitude he was at at the time that it happened. And it sounds like this ejection was more based on airmanship and flying skills as opposed to what happened with the civilian aircraft. Uh, he oh, may I, not have, I think so. Yeah, he he wasn't supposed to be doing what he did, but in doing it, then. He threw a wrong switch. The aircraft shuttered. He didn't recognize what it was. And rather than diagnose it, again, based on the altitude he was at, he bailed out. That's the issue. It's an airmanship issue more than anything else. The rest is important, but not as important to the news story as why that aircraft was destroyed. Well, I think they said the uh, little airplane was, what, down at 17 or 1,800 feet? 1,700, yeah, Yeah, exactly. uh, Yeah, and if he was at 300 feet above it, so he's at 2,000 feet, yeah. Right. Mike, I I, I disagree. I I think the airmanship was part of it. To me, the bigger issue is judgment. Bad judgment, you know, led to uh, an exposure of his poor airmanship. But, you know, the the root cause was the poor judgment. If he was following the rules, never would have gotten into it. What are the consequences for a pilot like this? (laughs) He lost his allowance. He's got to pay for the airplane. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, but I sure hope he doesn't get promoted. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting, though, because we never really see the uh, the final reports on incidents from the military like this, do we? This is a pretty long report. It's uh, 36 pages. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's you know, pretty unusual. I haven't seen uh, many that are this detailed. But I, I guess what I'm thinking is I'd like to see what uh, how much time this uh, fellow that ejected had in the airplane. Uh, it, had he been newly he certified was an instructor in it? Pilot, uh, it says in the article. Oh, he, he was an instructor. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. I knew one of them was an instructor, but uh, oh well. Okay, yeah. I'll just shut up tonight because I'm not. I'm not being very smart tonight. Actually, you know what it is. You know what the problem is. Just for our listeners, you guys are just outsmarting me again, and it's it's making me feel very bad about myself. We've been practicing in between episodes. Okay. <laughs> yes, by the way, it says that at the time of the mishap, he was a current qualified F-16 instructor pilot with a total of 1,300 hours oh, yeah. 
of which uh, 1194 were in the F-16. To, to me, it's less about the hours. It's the fact that he's an instructor breaking the rules. I, mean, I, I understand that there's this, this tension in the military where you, you want people to be willing to push the envelope, which may be important in combat. And when you push the envelope, yeah, maybe people are tempted to break the rules. But, you know, clearly this, this guy stepped on the, the wrong side of the line. Although the, the interesting thing about it is that had he not lost the aircraft, had he not bailed out, there would, nobody would have ever known what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so common. Uh, people break the rules all the time and they figure, oh, I can get away with this. Here's my guess. Probably not the first time this guy has broken the rules. That's often the case with pilots when we find that they break rules something happens and they get caught usually because it's a crash you go back dig deeper and you find out oh this is not the first time that this person has broken the rules so it's a slippery slope i always encourage everybody to you know when you're flying follow the rules all the time because you just don't know which ones are quote okay to break and which ones are gonna you know cause a problem What's up with the geeks? Micah, I was going to ask you, uh, do you know where Brian is? I, I can't keep track of uh, where, yeah. where Brian is. In fact, is. I got a text from him while we're doing the show. He said he should be asleep, but he's in Zambia right now at Victoria Falls. And uh, he went there. He got there in, into South Africa. I think it was Thursday night, and he's coming back this Thursday, and he's traveling. Uh, somebody took him up on, his, uh, on what we talk about, that he will take – People, packages, or pets, uh, any place that, that they need to go. And uh, somebody said, yeah, I'd like to travel. If you want to travel with me, we can travel together. And somebody said, yeah, let's go. So he's been sending me some pictures of his hotel and and a giraffe right by the hotel. And uh, he's going on safari, and he's at Victoria Falls and uh, just having a great time. I can't wait to find out how the whole trip was. Yeah, that's cool. I'm slowly catching up on the... The Journey is the Reward podcast episodes. Well, remember, it's if you're when you, after you listen to it, it's I am really offended at uh, <laughs> yahoo.com because I'm sure we've offended somebody. But yeah, that's uh, and you know, Brian and I have done a couple of special interviews um, that have one of them has aired on The Journey is the Reward, the other one will, but both of them we did really for the Airplane Geeks as well and as a special gift for the Airplane Geek listeners. And I think we're going to air those interviews next week and it's going to be a Christmas gift. During those interviews, listen carefully, it's coming up. There's going to be some special giveaways, major giveaways, one in each interview. And I think our listeners, the people that uh, that listen and are interested, are going to be really thrilled at uh, what we have to give away, two different ones and uh, really some major Christmas gifts. Yeah, so watch for that or listen for that. That'll be episode 728, come out a week after after this episode. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. So anything else, Micah? Well, recently, you know, I'm always fetching is the Yiddish word that's complaining. I said that earlier. There was a great blog by Patrick Smith who has his Ask the Pilot blog, and it's uh, at askthepilot.com. He was a guest on our show, I think, back in, in 2016 sometime, I think in June or July. But anyway, his uh, his blog that he wrote, this column, is called Flying in 2022, and uh, it has uh, a lot to do with passenger and societal complacency and how we agree to race to the bottom with the airlines and service and, and, and all those things in general. And even uh, 
even goes into, and we'll talk about this later when we get to uh, one of our uh, letters from our listeners, and has a little bit to do with Real ID. Um, yeah, we have some developments on that front. There is one other item that just popped up that I think we should mention. Uh, I got a uh, a text from Isaac uh, Alexander, who is in charge of that. What does he run, that uh, hyper-aviation? Uh, aviation. Yes, I knew it was energetic <laughs> aviation. Uh, no, actually, an old friend of the show, uh, Dan Webbage. Um, some of you old-timers may remember he's going back to work at... Uh, Delta Airlines. Oh, is he? He's oh. the manager of Sky Miles and Small Business Strategy. So cool. good luck to Daniel. Yeah. Good. Sounds like right up Dan's alley. How old was he when he started with us? He was still in high school. Yeah. He was wow. like, I don't know, 18 or. They, they grew maybe up less so that. quickly. Does that mean that he's going to give us all uh, free passes to the Delta Sky Miles clubs? I mean, lifetime passes? I, you'd think. I think that's going to go to the same uh, kind of answer that Max talked about before when I mentioned uh, CEOs from airlines talking. I think these kinds of uh, employees would be uh, rather shot at sunrise than hand free stuff out to their friends. But please, Mr. Webbage, prove me wrong. (laughs) There you go. All right, so Micah, that uh, the Patrick Smith uh, article. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, it's askthepilot.com, dot com, and uh, it's well, it was his latest one. I don't know if it'll be when this comes out, but it's called "Air Travel Is Broken." All right, we'll look for that. Max T, what's new with you? Boy, it seems like the same thing over and over and over again. Just flying like crazy. Uh, this past weekend's probably a good example. I spent, uh, let me think, all day Saturday uh, working with a guy flying a Vision Jet around California, which was great fun. We ended up in uh, Las Vegas, Palm Springs, and uh, let's see, Montgomery, uh, San Diego. Uh, we ended up, uh, he, he's spending the week down there, so the jet stayed there, and I came back on Southwest, which uh, worked out great. Love Southwest. Uh, really great for zipping up and down uh, California on these one-hour legs. It all went well. And then the, the last two days of the weekend, if you will, Sunday and Monday, I was supposed to be on a, a two-day trip with a, a gentleman to help build some time for insurance purposes, but the aircraft was not uh, working. There was something that needed to be fixed, so instead, we spent those two days in the simulator he's working on his uh, instrument reading and we logged uh, well 12 over 12 hours of simulator time in two days and so on uh, monday of this week i was literally in the sim uh, room for seven hours and we logged 6.4 in that time longest time i have ever ever been in the simulator but you know what it was incredibly productive you know it's just amazing when you uh, you know, can repeat things over and over and over again probably what was most interesting to me was flying the three different instrument approaches into Truckee. And when we did that, uh, usually we have the clouds displayed on the simulator because it's, uh, you know, instrument training. In this case, I turned the clouds off so that we could see the terrain. The terrain is daunting. Uh, the, the, the lowest of these approaches starts at 9,500 feet. One of them started at 10,800. The other one, I think, started at 12,000 feet. So at 12,000 feet, you're getting darn close to the, to the oxygen altitudes. Um, and then the minimums were really fascinating. Only one of the approaches 
got in with minimums of 600 and roughly 50 feet. So the clouds would have to be at least 650 feet above the, the ground. The other two approaches, uh, the clouds had to be above about 1,600 or about 1,900 feet. And that's just because there's so much terrain that they can't construct the instrument approaches to get you down any lower uh, as you head toward these uh, other runways. So it really just highlights how difficult it is to get into some of these uh, places and just how good the weather has to be. Uh, and of course, uh, we had a, uh, a Challenger uh, jet that crashed at Truckee uh, last summer, so a year and a half ago, which was flying one of the approaches that uh, that we flew today. It was interesting. It was the one that had the, uh, the lowest minimums. However, he was going to circle to another runway, and it was that uh, circle which... Uh, did not uh, go well. So anyway, fascinating uh, day, just doing lots of flying and uh, spent a lot of time in the simulator, which was kind of fun. Good. All right. We have a couple of emails from listeners. Uh, we, we got a nice one, a long one, but very nice one from Nate. And I, I won't read the whole thing, but um, I especially want to read the first paragraph. I don't want to miss that one because uh, Nate writes, first and foremost, I love the show. So we're off to a good start here with Nate. He says, it was my first podcast oh so many years ago and will forever be a standard part of my weekly aviation intake. Your tireless years of content production are appreciated and loved by so many of us around the globe. That made me feel really good. Well, it's good that you're making somebody feel good, Max, because not everybody here tonight is feeling warm and fuzzy. That's okay. We don't have to single that person out again, again, do we? No, we'll we'll avoid that. So Nate goes on, I took great interest in the piece about SFO Airport landing atop the Wall Street Journal's list of best U.S. airports. As a resident of the Bay Area and a locally based captain for a nationwide low-cost carrier, he says, I've had the chance to see SFO from both the perspective of the passenger and the pilot. There is a confluence of interesting factors that I suspect have led to the airport's much improved passenger experience. He says, first off, Max T is absolutely right. The close spacing of SFO's primary run, uh, arrival runway pair severely reduces arrival rates when the weather is marginal. Due to our ongoing drought, we simply haven't had as much moisture in the atmosphere, resulting in many less foggy days. And I love that line. I forwarded it to my entire family, and they were like, what? Dad was right about something? I can't believe it. <laughs> did, did they ever give any thought to building another uh, uh, runway out in the water that would allow they them did. to? Ah. Yeah, so this, this airport was created, I want to say maybe in the 30s, by filling in a substantial part of the bay. And by the time they gave thought to you know, filling in more of the bay, it was just no longer environmentally oh, acceptable to, to, to fill to fill in the bay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Had they thought about that when they first built the airport, no problem. But years later, it was just a, you know, it was a dead-on arrival proposal. I remember the first time I flew into SFO. This was at least 30 years ago, I think. So a long, long, long time ago. And... Um, I'm looking out the window as we're as we're landing, and I see another plane shadowing us, not very far, <laughs> not very far away. And I freaked out. The only thought that ran through my head is we are both headed to the same runway because this is definitely you know a landing approach, and we're on a landing approach. And I because did, I didn't know that there were parallel runways that were that close together. I didn't know what to do. I 
you know, I figured this was the end of it. Well, typically, uh, many of the fights I've been on, the pilot will come on and tell folks, hey, and just want to let you know, if you look out on the right, you see another airplane. And so I think that's really nice uh, yes. when they do that. That just helps uh, tremendously. So Nate goes on and he said, uh, additionally, SFO took a particularly acute traffic hit uh, with COVID due to its large proportion of international traffic. SFO is by a wide margin the international hub of the Bay Area, and when that traffic disappeared during the COVID lockdowns, the airport's traffic as a whole was dramatically reduced, resulting in much better timeliness for the remaining mostly domestic flights. So I can see that uh, that being the case. But Nate was amused. He was amused that Max T commented on the generally good TSA experience at SFO. Uh, he says, quite ironically, TSA has, this is interesting, TSA has never operated the security checkpoints at SFO. It is one of 22 airports, and by far the largest, nationwide that has been granted a waiver for a private firm to conduct security screening. A company called Covenant Aviation Security, using private employees, has conducted screening in accordance with all applicable TSA regulations and standards since the formation of the TSA in 2001. So that was interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that any of them had uh, contract security. Yeah, and I think there might have been a very brief period after 9-11 where they took the company uh, that was providing private security and may have temporarily brought them into TSA. But he's absolutely right. For the vast majority of time, it's been a, a non-TSA place. And I didn't think to mention that because I just think, hey, security people and use the phrase TSA generically, which, you know, he's right. There are multiple airports that way. Yeah. And so he finishes up uh, Max T astutely, I like this, uh, astutely observed that a massive, you know, he didn't say anything about Rob. It's it's all about Max Trescott. Yeah. And by the way, Nate, by the way, is the pseudonym I use when I write these <laughs> fake letters to the Airplane Geeks <laughs> yeah. podcast. Do you, do you mean Max, the past winner of the CFI of the Year award? Okay. 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 Yes, I, exactly. Because I, 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 I'm just trying to clarify things. Uh, All right. Uh, so the outstanding journalist of the year is. <laughs> so Max T. astutely observed that a massive amount of money has been invested in capital improvements at SFO over the last 20 years. Since 2000, the year 2000, they've added a mass, uh, the massive new international terminal, replaced the old international terminal with a new domestic terminal two, replaced most of terminal one, this must have cost a lot, replaced one concourse of Terminal 3, added an in-terminal connection to the BART regional light rail system, added an inter-terminal elevated people mover, replaced the control tower, and even added a long-overdue hotel connected to the terminal complex. Combine this staggering amount of development with the other unique factors I've described, and you see why the airport has soared from a delay-ridden, overcrowded mess to the top of the Wall Street Journal list. Thanks again for all you do for the aviation community. So, and and that was really nicely explained because uh, yeah. it, here in Chicago, we look at how long uh, we've been uh, uh, rebuilding O'Hare Airport for 15 years, I think. And, uh, I mean, they've added... Uh, four different, three different uh, runways uh, to make it uh, run all east-west, kind of the way uh, Denver International runs all north and south and DFW. And and they spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Yet if you walk through the terminal, you go, same old place. 
Hmm. Same old building. Uh, it it never seems to improve. And uh, I, I, apparently, I guess, just spending money. Uh, of course, I guess what you said before, Max, they don't really have any way to expand uh, the airport. So, uh, I mean, runway-wise. So I guess uh, infrastructure in that little, uh, well, it's not quite an island. It's a peninsula, I guess, really, isn't it? Uh, but... You know, so that's what all, that's what Chicago does uh, or should do. Just spend more money. Well, you know, we are beyond the point of airport expansion pretty much within the United States. We're beyond the point of airport building even in the United States. And the problem is, I think the the newest the airport that has been built most recently is Denver. Uh, and I remember flying in and out of Stapleton. I've never been to the Dune Denver Airport, but it was way out when they were building it. I was living in Colorado at the time. Everybody joked, yeah, they're building it in Kansas. But now if you go there, everything's so built up all around it now that you couldn't expand it. And that's what happens with airports. Everything builds up around it. People start moving in close, and then they complain that there are airplanes nearby. Yeah. Hey, I want to mention one thing about the parallel runways and Max, what you mentioned about seeing the airplane uh, landing next to you. Many years ago, when I was on a business trip for HP, I was on a flight to uh, Boise that got canceled because the weather was so lousy. And I thought, hey, perfect opportunity. I'm going to go visit the tower. And it's uh, it's been common here in the U.S. that pilots can get access to the tower. And it's a program where they like being able to help them see what's going on on the other side of the microphone. So I thought, hey, San Francisco, let's do that. They uh, they buzzed me up and I went up to the top of the tower and I spent a long time, probably 45 minutes with a uh, supervisor who just kind of talked to me about all the operations uh, going on there. And with the, the, the way they the reason they want those two airplanes coming in on parallel when they're arriving driving on 28 left and 28 right is they want them to go through the center of the intersecting runways at about the same time so that when those two aircraft pass the intersection, they can then launch the two departures off of one left and one right, which are then fired off behind them. And on the departure, each of them gets about a 10 degree turn to the right, uh, pardon me, away from each other. So the one on one right goes 10 degrees right, one on one left goes uh, to the left. And then if they get a chance, they'll fire off a third one as well before the next pair of uh, aircraft land on the 28 left and 28 right. So they to maximize the capacity, they really need to put them side by side on the arrivals just so that they can you know get the get the departing aircraft out. Otherwise, they'd never be able to get the departures out because the, the, the runways intersect right in the middle. I wonder if it's the same at Newark, which is also parallel runways with uh, 22 left and 22 right uh, if you're coming in from the north, which is how they usually do it. And, uh, and I, you know, I've seen aircraft, uh, as I'm landing i've seen aircraft landing to the to the right or the left of me at newark well they do have an intersecting well it's there not is one intersecting yeah at the very very yeah. end of it yeah. yeah on the north end of the airport yeah. it runs kind of east west yeah, two nine one one all right one more email this is on the topic of real ids we were talking about about those last week uh, there's been kind of a, a discussion about real ids uh, on mastodon and one thing I've learned in the last couple of days is that, boy, different states treat this real ID process completely differently. For uh, uh, one poster, um, when renewing their driver's license, they had to pay a $75 fee again, you know, for their real ID. And I'm thinking, that's nuts because, I mean, nothing's changed. And, you know, where I live, uh, you go online, you say, okay, do you have a real ID? You know, yes. Okay, you can renew your license online, fill it out, 
you're done. They mail you your driver's license. No charge for for real ID. But that's not not the case. I guess the states have implemented different rules, different processes. It costs you more to get the real ID the first time in the, the state of Maine. Time. But after that, you don't have to do it. And the first time, uh, and I, I got mine when I heard you guys uh, speaking about it last week, um, you have to have proof of citizenship um, or, or proof of you a permanent residence in the U.S. Uh, you have to be able to provide your social security number. You don't have to have the card, but you have to be able to provide the social security number. And then you have to have two documents that prove you're a resident of the state of Maine. It can be a utility bill or a paycheck stub or a mortgage statement, but you have to have those two things. The real ID, driver's license, costs more than the non-real ID, and you're not required to get a real ID one. But what's interesting about the news story that we just got today, I think, from, uh, from Ryan is that the real ID, as you discussed last week, was going to be required by May of 2023, but now it's extended until May of 2025. Yep. And what fascinates me about this, this goes back to the whole compliance thing or complacency thing that I talked about with uh, about uh, Patrick Smith's podcast. They put this into effect in 2008, and they we were supposed to have real IDs from 2008. 14 years later, we still don't. So the question becomes... Are they necessary or is it more security theater? And why are we doing it at all? People go, went crazy about the vaccine because they thought the government was going to be chipping them, which is nuts. Nuts. But, crazy. But, but, you know, but having issuing a, a true national ID, which is what real ID is. Yeah, I, I have it, but I have some concerns about it. But I had a passport anyway. I figured, you know, I can be tracked. It doesn't really matter. But the question is. Why is it – if we've gotten away with it for 14 years, why do we need it? What is it doing to help? Well, Micah, there's, a, there's an interesting parallel which has stretched out even longer. After 9-11, people were shocked to discover that pilot certificates do not have photographs on them. And I believe Congress passed within a year or so a law that said pilot certificates must have photographs on them. I don't know how many years it's been since 2001, but uh, we still don't have certificates with, with photographs on them. Yeah. All right. One last item. There is an artificial intelligence page function app. I'm not sure what You've been is. listening to Leo Laporte. I have. That's where I first heard about it. It's called Chat GPT. And what you do is you give it some information. It can be write me a poem about the Supreme Court of the United States or any random thing. And this artificial intelligence will construct the text, which is almost surprisingly related to, uh, you know, the, the sort of the topic that you uh, that you gave it. So, Rob, what is this poem or who generated this poem about Rob? I, I did. Uh, he, okay. he did. He did. Yep. All right. So, so, Max, set this up and then, then read the poem. Absolutely, because we need to say more good things about Rob on this particular show. <laughs> especially, yeah, so, yeah. And, and this is really timely because I can't remember if I did. Let's see, I, I thought I did this, this was so funny. I I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah, I did this yesterday evening, and I sent it out uh, to several of the people here. And I wrote that I created an account on uh, you know this uh, location. We'll give you the email, ad- uh, the uh, web address for it in a moment. And what I typed into it was quote. 
write a poem about Rob, who is a journalist, pilot, former airline pilot, and former controller. And this is what it uh, spit out. And it said, Rob is a man of many talents and skills, a journalist, pilot, and former controller still. With a passion for flight and a love of the sky, he's a true Renaissance man, that's no lie. His words have brought stories to life on the page. His skills as a pilot have taken him to new heights. And his time as a controller has given him a unique insight into the world of aviation and all its delights. Rob is a man of action and adventure, a master of both land and sky. With a thirst for knowledge and a curious mind, he's a true inspiration, one of a kind. So here's to you, Rob, on your many pursuits. May you continue to soar and never lose your zeal. For all that you do, we thank you and we feel incredibly lucky to know you, our friend, so real. Wow. I I mean, (laughs) if you tried, I don't think anybody could have put it together like that. I mean, I'm so impressed. And it's Uh, also true. (laughs) Oh, well, yes. Thank you very much. But Max, thank you very much for thinking of me when you uh, when you did that. I was just blown away by the results. I, I mean, it really is just uh, just unbelievable. Have you seen the thing on Mastodon, though, where uh, I think Rod Rakick did it first, where it's uh, uh, creating graphics of a person from their photo, and then it can uh, integrate you into, it can make you look like a character from from Star Wars. Uh, with the uniforms of the uh, uh, of the of the day, and uh, I just I, if you haven't been up there, go up to uh, uh, Mastodon and check into the uh, my transponder uh, page because it 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 it's really cool. I I don't profess to have the intelligence to be able to operate the artificial intelligence that uh, they use to do that, but I think John Ostrower did one and. Yeah, John Ostrow did, did one, one, posted it on Twitter, and it, it was great. It was just yeah. super. These are amazing. And it's a machine that's doing this. It's just it's, well, it's almost eerie. So if you – we'll have the – maybe you've got the link. I do. Let me just mention it right now. If you go to chat.openai.com, create an account, and then there's a, what looks like a search bar down at the very bottom. Uh, it's pretty easy to miss. Uh, but look at the very bottom of the page after you create an account and then just type in something like write a song about Micah, the main man, and you'll see what, what it produces. Uh, today I tried, I went to that site and I tried to create an account, but it said that they uh, were not accepting any more accounts at this time. I think it said that they were trying to you know, scale the thing up to handle it. But as you can imagine, this thing has gone viral, Is 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 basically, I think, the reason is that their server just is not able to handle the, the volume. You know, once this once this got out, but uh, mm. well, I'm sure it, it broke the system after it worked so hard to create that poem for Rob. <laughs> I was going to say, let me in, but hey, thank you everyone for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We really, really appreciate it, and for those of you who have stuck around to the bitter end here. Uh, we especially appreciate it. Our guest this episode was Charlie Dyson, the Technology Activation Manager at the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, MEDC. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com slash 727. We didn't talk about that airplane at all this episode, so we, uh, we let you down in that regard for those that were expecting it. Apologies. 
You can reach us on our or at our email address, thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Max Trescott, anything closing? Well, people can find me uh, at most airports in the Western United States. So just keep your eye out. <laughs> Actually, I had a funny thing. Uh, a month or two ago, I was uh, in Van Nuys uh, Airport in a vision jet, and I heard a familiar call sign and voice. And I said, oh, look, there's another one of my clients coming up the taxiway in his vision jet right toward us. Wow. I sent him a text message, uh, which he got while he was taxiing. And so we got to, to wave, each, uh, wave at each other at the end of the runway. So it is funny how these things kind of happen sometime. But yeah, anybody who wants to send me a note, I can be reached at uh, AV. AsianNewsTalk.com. Just click on contact at the top of the page. All right. And Rob Mark, how about you? I'm not going to mention where people can find me because after how many years? Uh, 10, 12, 14, 16 years? People just stop paying attention. People don't. Yeah, if they don't know where to. And, and you know what? I give this every week and nobody writes me anyway. I don't get any messages. I don't get any mail. They're too busy writing no. your poetry. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> yes, but I, I will be selling that poem uh, uh, for uh, a great, uh, great Christmas gift. Um, but no, uh, anyway, I, I just I'm just glad that we're approaching the end of a uh, of 2022. This has not been. This is not going to go out as my favorite year. Oh, no. Oh. Except to be with you guys, of course. It's it's been a pain in the neck for you, Rob. Uh, it has actually, Leo, and I, I mean, I'm sorry, Micah. I, 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 uh, I, I'm sorry. I always get you guys confused. All right, is that it? I isn't that enough? Uh, I think All it right. is. Yes. Somebody write Rob an email. Go over to jetwine.com. Check that out. All right, Micah. How about you? Well, you can always uh, listen to me and Brian together on the Journey is a Reward podcast. That's the journeyistereward.org. And I'm available on Twitter at Mainfly, M-A-I-N-E, like the state, Mainfly, F-L-Y, like let's go flying. And I'm also on Mastodon, and that's uh, Mainfly at twit.social. And if I've offended you, it's I am really offended at yahoo.com. I think I know one wheelchair company that might have something to write to you about. <laughs> All right, and I'm Max Flight. You can uh, find out where I hang out at 30,000feet.com, all words written out. Uh, and I've got my Mastodon. It's Max Flight on Mastodon, but if you're not on Mastodon, there's a link there you can uh, click, and it'll open up something or other in a web page. So you, you, can, uh, you can find me there. And so don't forget to uh, listen to us next time as we have a couple of uh, interviews with some giveaways associated with them. You want to check that out next week. Really amazing giveaways, I might add. Some really great stuff. So it's not just going to be a picture of you and Brian that's autographed? Not this time. Rob, you blew it. Ah, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Good night, everybody. And for David, thanks for listening. Can you guys snap both of your fingers? I mean, at the same time, yeah. I hate people like that. You can't do that?
No. Yeah, but can, can you do a loud whistle? That's what I want to know. No, I, that was going to be my next question. Oh, okay. The people that can do the oh, fingers in the <laughs> mouth. I always yeah. wanted to be able to do that. Me too. All right. You know what? I, th I think we, there must be a video that will teach us how to do it. How about that's our <gasps> summer, you know, our, our winter project. We I, all learned it. When I was a kid, my grandfather, who I've written about, could do it. And my yeah. grandmother always say, look, he can do it with your fingers. And he'd take my fingers and put it. And he didn't no want to do it. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but he would, really? you know. But Grandma said we had to do it, so we Holy. both did it. Neither one of us liked Never. the idea. That's but, yeah, he he could my, do it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When I was a kid, you know, when I, especially when I was a kid, and you'd see somebody or hear somebody do that. Some people can do that with their fingers and whistle, and you could, you know, you could hear that two hundred yards away. Or yeah, I always wanted to be able to do that. <laughs> hey, hey, by the way, before you guys, I know some of you guys watch the. Um, uh, military movies like I do. Did you ever, anybody ever watch a movie called Dauntless? That's familiar. It's an airplane movie? Uh, yeah. Oh, the that's guy, the, is that the new one? Uh, I don't know if it's new or not. It's on Roku. Uh, it is probably the worst, not just worst aviation movie, but the worst movie I have ever seen. Dauntless, but the Battle alone, of Midway? Uh, yes, that one. Oh, 2019. It's, it's awful. Just awful. Anyway, uh, I just thought I'd pass that on. Thanks so. for letting us know. Uh, so let's see. <laughs> oh, what I, I love that? the first review. I have seldom been so disappointed in a film. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> let's see what Rotten Tomatoes says about it. Where's um, the... Uh... Oh, here's Wikipedia. The Battle of Midway, Thoughtless the Battle of Midway, did not see a wide theatrical release, being mainly <laughs> distributed through home media and streaming services. <laughs> it's not even rated on... on uh, Reviews. Oh, my uh, God. Oh, Rob, I think everybody agrees with you. Thanks for the warning. <laughs> 